This is Abraham Goldberg. I'm the director of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement. I am also a faculty member in the Department of Political Science here at James Madison University. And I'm Kara Whaley. I'm the associate director at the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement. This is our new podcast, and we're going to be exploring themes related to civic engagement, to building a more just, equitable, inclusive democracy, thinking about how we renew and strengthen democracy in these times, and what does that actually look like? Talking with practitioners, students, faculty, um, community members um, who who are really engaged in the hard work of rebuilding civic life. I was at a conference right after the election up in Washington, D.C. that was put together by the Students Learn, Students Vote Coalition. And one of the things that I loved about being part of that network was that, you know, yeah, we were kind of reflecting upon the 2018 midterm and, and what happened on college campuses to encourage and, and uh, support students participating in that election. But they were very careful in the framing of this conference that they talked about, you know, it's, it's not that we're just aiming to get more people to vote. Um, it was about creating a more inclusive democracy. And, and to me, that language is, is very, very important. And so, you know, why do we support and encourage not only students and, and others to, to vote and to um, engage in civic and political life and in other ways? Um, it's not for the sake of that activity in and of itself. It's because we want to create a more inclusive and just democracy. And so having that, that end, that goal in mind, whereas encouraging engagement is perhaps the means to achieve that end. Yeah. I, I, my question I was that just popped into my head was, why are we here, <laughs> right? <laughs> Why do what we is exist? It exactly, <laughs> why do we, what is it exactly you say you do here, right. Abe? <laughs> Anybody that has seen the movie Office Space will appreciate our... I think it's a big anniversary this year, isn't it? Isn't oh, is it? Like it? Oh, gosh, please don't tell me that movie is... Is that movie 10 years old? <laughs> something like that, yeah. I'm a people person. <laughs> right. Why are you in this work? I'm a people person. And I think that guy lost his job, actually, <laughs> yeah, right? He did, he did. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain the guy that was the people person lost his job and ended up in a terrible car accident, but um, got to invent his hopscotch board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't hopscotch, it was something else I can't remember. I am definitely the Jennifer Aniston figure with <laughs> Is this enough pieces of flair for you? <laughs> That's right. It's actually the bare minimum flair. <laughs> That you're wearing, you know the um, the guy that played Lumberg in that movie, the boss was also in the West Wing. It all comes back to politics, right. folks. Right. <laughs> See how we did that? I can bring the West Wing in almost any conversation, including one about office space, as we're bantering on our <laughs> opening podcast. But he played a character that I believe ended up running for president, but it was definitely towards the later seasons. The the, the Post Aaron Sorkin seasons, I think. I think he stopped writing in, in after after season four, of which we all know there were seven seasons. I actually stopped watching after season four. Naturally, because <laughs> I went into graduate school and actually had to read. <laughs> Who was your favorite character? 
In the West Wing? Yeah. Did you have one? Mm, I don't know that I did. I would say, what was the policy? See, I don't even know their Like, I'm not such a devoutee that I know their names, right? Like, I can, I can see the image in my head. The shorter one, bald beard. Oh, Toby Ziegler. Toby. That's mine. That's my yeah, favorite. Yeah, that's mine. Yeah, the that's, policy wonk. Right. That's, that's right. my favorite. But I think he was also an idealist, right? And, and, and I think he would would get disappointed, right? I mean, I think he sort of had a vision and an idea. He was cranky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but in an endearing way, at least to me. <laughs> but he did. He had, a, he had a vision and he wanted to push and he wanted to sort of capitalize on this opportunity of being in the White House for the amount of time they were there to advance what he saw as the type of society that, you know, that America and the world should be. Yeah. Do you remember the episode when he goes walking in the streets of Washington, D.C., and he, he sees homeless people around him, right? I still can just, I, that scene is so vivid, right? Like here we are in this very wealthy nation and you see him go, you know, in the halls of power in the White House and like we can't even solve some of these problems. And I think about that oftentimes in our work. We're, we're in this wealthy country. We have so many resources. There's so many amazing minds. We have all these dedicated organizations, companies that are working for social good and we still have these persistent problems. Yeah, I mean, especially in a university setting, right, where we have the amount of, of intellectual capital, human capital, economic capital, ideas, well-meaning people that want to solve problems, but you don't have to look far to find some very real struggles that are happening in the immediate community of just about any university, not to mention some of the many of the struggles that our students themselves are facing, right? And so I think it makes this work very real. And it's important that we know that you don't have to look far to find people that are living very, very difficult lives. And, 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 and at the same time, believe in this idea that creating a, a more inclusive and just democracy can, can be a mechanism to solve many of the social issues that seem to be persistent right now. Yeah, so how do, you, how do we get there? We'll be exploring this every episode, right? <laughs> like, we're, we're, I mean, this is something that we're asking of every person that we're going to sit down with and have a conversation with. And we'll hear um, in this episode from Bato Herbert, um, who's an artist um, and is doing amazing work using art to address public problems, to, to show the interconnectedness of people, also of different levels. Somebody who is a local community in Los Angeles who was previously homeless and, and then using using their story to make changes in public policy at the national level, right? Because housing isn't just something that happens in one community. We know that there's acute housing crises everywhere, right? So in this episode specifically, we'll, we'll, we'll hear from him and, and some of the work that he's doing in art and social change. Um, and we'll hear from others as we progress in this series. <laughs> but I wonder what your thoughts are, you know, initially in terms of What's one thing you would do to strengthen democracy? I mean, I, I think about it in the context of our first podcast guest is, you know, are, are the physical spaces of our communities designed in such a way to build trust and connections among residents of a community? Or have we been building communities in such a way that inhibit that, that divide people? And I think it's very, very difficult within a democracy to, to get groups of people to come together to solve public problems if they 
grow up in communities of people that look like them, that think like them, that have the same political beliefs that are of similar socioeconomic backgrounds, and so that a lot of the public problems that perhaps they care about um, are not something that they personally experienced or encountered in their day-to-day life. I worry about whether or not we, we've segmented ourselves in such a way in this country to where these, these very real problems are, are more abstract than concrete. And I think that that can be a challenge for democracy. So I think one thing that, that, that I would strengthen our democracy would be, would be to build our communities in such a way to where you do have this mix of people, of ideas, of backgrounds, just operating among each other, going about daily life. Because for me, you know, I, I, don't, think, I don't think random unplanned contacts are unimportant. I think they're deeply meaningful, right? And, and, and you know, I, I remember when I was in graduate school and I, I've even assigned work from those that studied urban design of the 1970s and 80s and looking at kind of, I think about William White, right, in the, in the plazas of New York and, and why some were more successful than others. And, and really there's, there's important design features of a public space that can encourage diverse groups of people to, to, to share those spaces together and, and interact with one another. And for me, that's just a key ingredient to what can ultimately lead to collaborative decision-making on issues that people have seen firsthand because we're operating in a society together. So I'm, I'm deeply inspired by the idea of design, of architecture, of art, not only to, to bring vibrancy to the public sphere, but, but at the same time to connect people around ideas. Well, with that, <laughs> we were, we're just delighted that we were able to have this incredible conversation for this inaugural episode. I can't think of a better person, actually, to have. We, we had the opportunity to sit down with Bato Erbert. Again, he's an artist. Um, he is also an associate professor in arts and public policy at New York University Tisch School of Arts. So please take a listen and tell us what you think. Be sure to follow us on our social media accounts, at JMU Civic on Twitter, and also at JMU Duke's Boat, if you're a student. And then on Facebook, you can find us at JMU Civic. And on Instagram, JMU Dukes Vote. Are we on Snapchat? We, we don't have an institutional account on, account on Snapchat, but you can, no. I, I'm just showing off that I knew that Snapchat was a thing. <laughs> as, as we're quoting office space. Yeah. <laughs> Hebert. Thank you so much for being with us today. Shelby, do you want to introduce your name? Sure. My name is Shelby. <laughs> I'm the engagement fellow in the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement. And I'm Kara Whaley. Thank you for being with us today, Pato. Thank you um, for having me. Is it it's okay if I call you Pato? Please, yeah. <laughs> okay. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about what sparked your own activism and engagement. It's a it's an interesting question. I often when I work with community groups, we're doing if we're doing organizing or we're trying to tackle the conditions of people's lives, I'll ask what I call the origin story. Like how did you get involved in this work? And of hearing people's stories, our stories that we share about what brings us to the work we do. There was a kind of series of things that happened in a fairly short amount of time when I was a young person. I had a partner when my first year in undergrad who 
you know, I had the privilege to be at a university and to be going to school. And the partner was part of a group of students who organized uh, for more support for students and faculty of color mm -hmm. and took over the president's office. So that was a mm -hmm. very intimate encounter from slightly outside of it with direct action. Mm -hmm. um, and very soon thereafter, the U.S. invaded Panama in mm -hmm. what was called, you know, ironically, Operation Just Cause in 1989. Right. And then soon after that was the first Gulf War. So there were these series of kind of close to me in different ways and yet very macro and structural awarenesses that were happening around different scales of politics and different ways of intervening. And then within a few years, I was doing HIV work and work around HIV and AIDS, particularly in communities of color and queer communities. And that's when I think the my sense of politics and organizing and what it means to work with others uh, intensified. And I was also working in public education as a way to earn my living and ideally to, to make interventions and shape space with others. And so these places of enacting politics, the arts, which was also happening for me, HIV and AIDS, and thinking about education and what it means to learn together were all catalyzing in a, in a fairly short amount of time. And, mm -hmm. um, and then I think I got... I got ensnared. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really interesting that your first encounter is at college and your first experience with direct action, a form of civic engagement. And I wonder, you know, if you might just talk a little bit about what you think the role of the colleges and universities is mm -hmm. in helping students understand civic engagement and different forms of civic engagement and really giving them the capacity, the skills, and the knowledge to be able to engage themselves. And also, have you seen any change from when you were in college to now being a professor and, and the students that you work with about, you know, is there more engagement, less engagement? Those are all great questions. And <laughs> I do think that that moment with direct action was in college my mom worked retail the first half of my life and then went back to school in her early 30s with three kids to wow. become a teacher. I think it was my junior year of high school. She was a public, public school teacher. They went on strike. So I think, you know, I could trace other lineages of how politics manifest before that moment in college. But I think that moment in college, early in my time in college, was an engagement with direct action. And so seeing how, you know, unionized labor approach something like a teacher strike in a medium-sized town, and then how students would organize themselves beyond an, an institution, but to shape an institution were really formative experiences. There's what happens inside of a curriculum or inside of an office, and by that I mean an entity at a university, lighter for civic engagement. There's the kinds of public programming where a guest like me, a visitor who's fortunate to be here at JMU, has the chance to engage um, campus community. And then there's all the informal stuff that's not mm -hmm. necessarily in the classroom or the centers or the public programming or the invited guests, but the debates that happen at the lunch table, right, or right. in the dorm. And I think one of the things that can happen, universities could in some ways just re-enshrine power. And so we just see power replicated in who gets to be here and who has a say in what happens. But they can also be spaces of a phenomenal encounter productive friction um, awakening. And I hope that's never unique to universities. <laughs> I hope that can happen all over the culture. But universities at their best are these phenomenally rich spaces of engagement. And that's one of the things that's really, really important to hold open. And particularly with a public university like JMU, I think it's questioning the boundary of who's inside the JMU space and not, and who does JMU belong to, right? Literally because it's a state institution. but 
but also because it, it complicates that idea of what's public, what's civic, what's a commons. And I think holding open those questions, particularly through something like education, but also in a place where there's a concentration of power, because not everybody can be here equally, or isn't, I should say, here equally, then there's a lot of rich material to work with. Yeah. Um, I do see, in some ways, the same kinds of things my partner and her cohort were fighting for, active all over campuses across the country, unfortunately. Like, what are the conditions in which people of color are working, or queer folk, or first-generation people in college, et cetera. I feel very fortunate to work in a program that wouldn't have existed when I was in school. So I'm the beneficiary in some ways of that work that others, including me, were doing 20 or 30 years ago. I say beneficiary in terms of you plant something and you water it and you tend that field. Sometimes it has a chance to grow and sometimes it gets eviscerated <laughs> by the frost, but the frost of inequality or power. But sometimes there are these really rich harvests and then more people can be invited to the table to cook and make new dishes and I'm using that metaphor because I think cycles of growing are really important when thinking about engagement. But yes. It's not always immediate. Um, and there will be some seasons that are fallow and some that are really rich. And how do you sort of hold a longer view but a very steady tilling of the land, as it were? Yeah. I mean, you s so much of what you said are some of the challenges that I think we grapple with here, mm -hmm. especially with regards to questioning, are we only reinforcing existing socioeconomic and political inequalities and inequities, right? Because we are building the capacity of our student, majority of whom already come from privilege. And I think one of the most important things is thinking about how are we, as you've talked about already, you know, engaging with the communities in which we're embedded and, and ensuring that we are working towards the public good and the common good, right? But oftentimes I find people aren't aware of what public and common might even mean. Um, and so there's a definitional question here. And I wonder how you see your work in arts and engaging communities as being one of those bridges that helps build civic skills, but also is doing the important work of bringing in the community um, and building the capacity of the community, working alongside the community. Yeah, I think it's a good question. And art is but one way to do that. Like, I think quality engagement would happen whether it's around food or access to education or a place to live. And in any of those, if people are engaged in shaping the conditions of our own lives, then there's a chance that we might be able to live differently, to imagine and create and problem solve new ways. And I think that's just as important in the arts as it is anywhere else, but it's important for the arts to remember that because we still often operate under a paradigm of thinking of artists as individuals, maybe isolated, maybe heroic, maybe crazy, all these sort of stereotypes of what an artist is. And while it's true that many of us, including myself, need solitude at times for our practice, and sometimes it is about remove or focus or depth of, of attention, that also can happen with others. And in the same way that an individual, if, if they've got a democratic right to vote, might make their own choices about how they're going to vote in a given election, they may be in deep engagement with family members, friends, contentious fights with neighbors or fellow citizens, thinking through the question of whether one has citizenship, all those things. That is happening in a shared ecology, in a shared process. And so in my work, I'm interested in making things as an individual artist, but I'm also really interested in the tensions and possibilities of a we. 
And I think, therefore, if people are engaged from the beginning, the conceiving, the decision-making, the prioritizing of resources, then the content and the form of art, the art is really alive and messy and belongs to way more than an individual or an institution because it's been grown up from a shared process. And there are times when that's a little much for me. <laughs> and then I need to retreat back into what I lovingly call patolandia, like times where, yeah, I just need to be... I don't, I'm not able to make work by committee. I need to just sit with the ideas or the pre-ideas myself and just open up to them. And I think that political change happens like that sometimes, too. Mm -hmm. Like, it can't always be in the fire of what we might call the public eye or even the contention of the group. But we, we may need lots of different registers, including time to just sit with them ourselves, and then the incredibly beautiful time to do that with others. Yeah. We were actually talking about that in our last uh, course, the importance of resonance and, mm. and sitting with things and active listening, and that being a huge part of deliberative dialogue and the importance of that. So that's really interesting that you just had to say that. Yeah, and, you know, art can take lots of forms, but to the extent that it might have some kind of materiality, whether it's song or, mm. you know, a wooden sculpture or a photograph, there's lots of forms for art, but what does it mean that the materials themselves, we might actively listen to and with them and that they might listen to us, right. which is again really different than a notion of uh, the artist will now shape this thing into this thing called art, right? <laughs> which it, there might be something that's much more of, a, of an interchange or a dialectic like active listening should be. Yeah, right. Or practicing inclusion, right? Mm. And I, I love this, I got this tension between when do we practice inclusion and you know when, when are those times for for retreat and reflection. Um, yeah, and, and when does when does my presence as an artist or as who I am in the world exclude, right? Just by being present, am I taking up space? When is that taking of space necessary, a kind of intervention? Because I wasn't included, and people are arrayed against my inclusion, right? And when is inclusion itself already speak to the inequality we were mentioning earlier, right, about who gets to be in a given space? And I think, again, art can't be the only place we wrestle with that, but it's a particularly vibrant place, at least for me just reading about you and, and some of the work that you're doing. It's really wonderful to read about um, the work that you did with Palo Verde residents. And I wonder if you would just share with us sort of an example of, of some of the work that you're doing in this space. I think fortunately, technically, the numbers of homeless went down slightly over the last year in Los Angeles. But there are more homeless people than the entire city of Harrisonburg, which in some ways is a function of the scale of Los Angeles but is also a really, I've been here the last two days talking to folks about this project. How do you make visceral the scale of the, of the issue? And the housing crisis in Los Angeles is acute. It's very, very, very intense. So there are many ways that people are responding. Some people are responding through the building of housing, more units, and then trying to address the affordability or accessibility of those units. I was approached by Los Angeles County Museum of Art and commissioned as an artist to work with 60-unit apartment complex where people who used to be homeless are now living. So they each have their own small studio apartment. And services are built into this apartment complex. So they have access to mental health, um, counselors, substance abuse support if they want or need it, access to their doctors, whether for diabetes or just run-of-the-mill kind of standard health issues, particularly as we age. A lot of them are middle-aged or elders. And so LACMA had a grant from the Irvine Foundation, so you think about the different kinds of stakeholders and resource flows here, to engage parts of the city that might not be engaged by the museum. 
in part because Los Angeles is so big and horizontal and the museum is located roughly central, how do you think about engaging audience and who does the museum belong to? It's a public museum after all. And in partnership with the foundation, there were three parts of the city that were priorities for engagement. And one of them was a northern part of the city that includes a lot of working class and light industrial neighborhoods. So this apartment complex ended up being one of the community partners. That mm. apartment complex is called Palo Verde. And I spent sort of two years engaging over multiple visits and workshops the residents of that building. And it ultimately ended up being a really small group of very dedicated resident participants who helped shape the idea of what would an artwork that might be meaningful to this community be. And one of the questions was if we're, we have these apartments but we didn't choose each other as neighbors, what does that mean about our relationship to each other and of course our relationship to the broader community in which our apartment complex is housed and all those histories we're bringing with us to the building. And there were many things we did, mostly by finding new ways to be together, watching the solar eclipse of August 2017 <laughs> in the courtyard of this building and this courtyard which was very beautiful but nobody really used. Mm. So a building full of people who may or may not engage each other, may or may not engage the space that could be shared, right? How do you do different things in that space? And the most embodied artwork that emerged was a zine, a small publication that featured images that they made and images of them and fragments of their stories, but not just this fetishization of the trauma that tends to happen in this kind of art or a kind of you have overcome heroic narrative, <laughs> but hopefully a much more nuanced range of kind of stories from childhood about eclipses, doubt and mistrust, survival strategies, like a whole range of ways that they have navigated their lives. Um, and then that zine was, we did a launch party there, but also at the museum, and it was circulated among their neighbors, some of whom didn't know each other, so the publication became a way to, to bridge to each other, even if only temporarily. It's not like there was this glowing community that <laughs> easily resulted, but new synapses were firing. And then it can also be used in contemporary and current outreach to people who aren't in that building, might be state legislators or people in DC, so it's mm -hmm. used in advocacy efforts. And I brought some here for, for the people I'm engaging here to think through this question of what does making art, which is to say making change with others, look like? What might it entail? So beautiful. <laughs> and just the, the ability to build a community, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, One of the things we've been talking about, a space like JMU and education and what it means to, to have a curriculum that's thinking through and in relationship to difficult histories and, and presence. And I think that kind of what, what happens in our excitement together is the possibility of art, is the possibility of organizing that we might imagine new ways of encountering one another. And um, I do think that politics happens necessarily at all kinds of levels. And while in this country policy is, is often thought of as the capital P politics and is super important, you know, we're never outside of legal frameworks, for instance, and policy also sets resource flows, you know, so it's incredibly important. And yet politics also happen at all kinds of other levels too. And I think helping people understand how policy works um, and us having a say in it is really, really important. I also think the scale of that and the abstractness of it can be challenging for people. And so there's the tours to the state capitol, which my mom used to take her grade school students on, 
which I think is really important, just kind of demystifying the space and seeing when does it feel alive, when does it feel <laughs> like it's yours, when is it alien to you, what does it mean to have a metal detector, when does it seem like a dusty bureaucracy, all that, right? But then there's the ethics of what happens, say, on a playground and the politics of space, you know, on a playground. And one of my first art projects was making photos of my students at lunchtime mm -hmm. on their playground. And seeing what happened in that space where it was still institutional and there were rules in play, there was policy as it were, but the citizenry as it were, the student body had some say in the kinds of games that were happening, right? And some self-organizing, sometimes self-regulating and accountability. There was always the school and the teachers present or the yard sort of security. But there was also this um, flexibility of what that space might be. And I think I learned a lot in moving in different roles inside an institution. Um, and I say that to say that I think changing policy is a huge pressure to put on anyone, and certainly on an artwork. And yet sometimes I think artworks can inform policy, whether it's informing debates or suggesting different priorities or forms. And so, the project that I worked on uh, at Palo Verde Apartments, one of the key participants, there were many, but was Emily Martinilich, and she uh, was an elder who spends quite a lot of time advocating for the needs of elders. And uh, through her own story, which is a kind of common advocacy strategy, tells her story of her life and then becoming homeless and now not being homeless, but being an advocate who speaks at the state level in Sacramento, at the local level in Los Angeles, but also in Washington, D.C. And she's, of course, working with housing advocates, right, and formerly housing challenged people to tell the story but also advocate for a different set of priorities. And so one of the pieces of content included in the zine that we made was a transcript of her speech that she gave in D.C. the summer prior. So she's, she's super agile and mobile and has one of those people that can speak with lots of different kinds of constituencies and um, just kind of pierces right through um, in the way that she speaks her truth and, and connects not just an individual story but to the larger things that are happening structurally. It's not to say that her testimony or that zine is always immediately legible in the shift in policy, but it's a really important tributary that feeds this larger stream of raising questions about housing scarcity or housing precarity in this country. And so I use that as an example to say that Sometimes the connection to building community at a very small, intimate level or contributing to the shift in a policy debate are, are connected. And in this case, through a, a woman and, and an organization's advocacy efforts that this project then in turn aligned with. Hmm. Interconnectedness is a concept that came to me through Buddhism. And I often think of it through teacher Tainat Han's notion of interbeing, that the three of us are sitting here at a table, and we may seemingly have our discrete bodies and senses of selves, but th those are actually really quite unstable. They're not fixed. And you know, it's one of these things that's been blowing my mind lately is that apparently science is realizing that about half or more than half of our bodies are bacteria. Mm -hmm. Like even this sense of our biomass and what makes me me is a comprised of living material that came originally from outside of me. and. I think that's an interesting way to think about interconnectedness and interbeing. We're recording our podcast and we're in a room with a beautiful wooden door and since it's not just laminate, it looks like it's actual wood. I can look at that door and I can then maybe imagine forest and see light and see water 
and think about the hands and the labor that grew that tree or harvested it or processed it or delivered it or installed it. And so I'm not just sitting with a kind of machined wooden plane. I'm, I'm connected to all these deep histories that that, that wood embodies and is. Um, so I saw your having come down off of it exhibit and blurring the lines of audience and activist and, and where that goes. And I was wondering what you may have to say to students that are looking for that why. Like, why should I get involved? Why should... There's so many things that students have to worry about in higher education, so many things that are going on. It's a huge adjustment period. So why should they be civically engaged? I mean, I would say what's at stake in your life? What is the urgency in your life? And if through interconnectedness, for instance, or maybe something called civic engagement, we think of the life as not only individual, but maybe it's a family member who's working through the challenges of breast cancer. Or maybe it's a roommate or a dorm mate who doesn't have enough money to go out. Or maybe you can't afford your books. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you can afford it and you're only realizing that for the first time, right? Like that none of this happens in isolation and that each of us can contribute to a different possibility, different stakes, but that we would have to do it together in order for it to not simply be a reinscribing of power and norms like we were discussing earlier or a kind of self-absorption. I think one of the tricks of surviving bureaucracies and making them not just bureaucratic but but alive is to find ways to appreciate the mundane and to mm. then maybe but shift it in ways so that it's a little less mundane and you kind of find the magic in. I think that's one of the things that art's really great for. I think mm. I think exchanges can be like that. Like, you know, one of the things I learned in HIV is a one night stand can change your life. Yeah. You know? And not only in the negative, like you can learn new ways of being in your body or being with others or open up to something that you never allowed yourself to or that society said you shouldn't and and all that can be happening in the span of 15 or 50 or 75 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's something about attending to our materiality and, and all the things that it gives something its form, but also I think the spirit of things. So sometimes when I talk about my work, I talk about the, the spirit of place, like a, the spirit of topography or the spirit of space. I'm really interested in space, whether it's built space like this or less built space, but still constructed like Shenandoah National Park, right? Oh, yeah. And what are the spirit of these places? And people like you who, at your best, I imagine work really hard to help make a, a fairly old, dusty building not so <laughs> dusty, right? I shouldn't say dusty because people are, of course, working really hard in their jobs to make sure it's clean. But <laughs> by that, I just mean that... Um, does it feel like it breathes? Right, you know? right. Um, you talked about just the scale and complexity of the problems that we're facing and sort of the importance of understanding our interconnectedness in addressing these issues. Well, first of all, how do you maintain hope in seeing the scale and complexity of these issues and also imbue others with hope? I find that oftentimes we end up focusing on policy solutions that are the low-hanging fruit that don't actually address the underlying causes or really focus changing the structural problem or really getting at how do we adjust these systems of power so that we can address these historic inequities. So I wonder how you think through addressing some of these really complex and challenging issues without losing hope. <laughs> and on the other hand, you know, how do we actually get to a point where we are creating this mass social change? You talked about planting seeds and letting them grow earlier on in our conversation, and, and I think that's really valuable, but it does seem that sometimes we are just putting Band-Aids on things. <laughs> and sometimes yes. we need Band-Aids. <laughs> sure. Right? 
Yeah, I think we do sometimes need Band-Aids and they will never be enough, right? And I think planting seeds is really, for me, the metaphor of thinking longer term. But of course, there are some seeds that are already vines that needed to be weeded and others that are ready to be harvested, right? And so one of the ways I read your point is that, of course, we can't just simply be delayed about it, right? Or or think that it will happen magically some point in the future. There's urgent hard work to be done now, always. And that's why we also have to take care of ourselves and take care of each other and, and go through our cycles of engagement in the same way that we need sleep and we need rest and we need play. Like I think politics needs that too, which is why it has to be a collective process and can't ever be about an individual or an office, right? There might be a catalyzing office of engagement or a some catalyzing individuals because they're particularly committed, but it has to be much more interconnected than that. And I'm not sure where the hope comes from, to be to be honest, but I often say that death was my amniotic fluid because my father's father died seven weeks before I was born. So for most of my mother's carrying me toward and, and then into the world, there was a really horrible colon cancer that was taking my grandfather out. Mm. And that colon cancer, without getting too much into the history because of time, but it was connected to work that he had been doing around nuclear energy, which is also connected to how my parents met in Panama. So my father's white from the Northwest in the US and my mother's from Panama. And so nuclear energy project in Panama of the US government is how those bodies came into contact. And that project ends. It was a very problematic project. But then eventually my parents follow my dad's family to eastern Idaho, where in less than two years my grandfather dies. And I'm unexpected but um, well-loved is what we, <laughs> I like to say. And so my, my grandmother, my dad mother, would always say, God took Eddie and gave us you. Hmm. And I think that's, you know, in big families especially a big Catholic family, there are often these cycles, like births and deaths or graduations and transitions often cluster somehow. It seems like that. And part of it's just an economy of scale. There's lots yeah. going on. But, <laughs> but I also think that's part of how, how in a new town with seven children and your oldest at 22 brings a new life in as you lose your husband at 46. And my grandma was a phenomenally strong woman. She was an orphan herself and both lost both her parents to polio and was raised by an auntie. And she was formidable and yet facing a very big challenge. Her grace and her resilience, her, her grit and her love and her hope was part of the, the water breaking of that amniotic. So there was this death, but and of course the hope of my parents and their resilience to kind of push through at a very young age with these unexpected births and deaths. Um, so that's a little overly autobiographical because there's plenty of people beyond my life and history itself and and ancestors and new people I'm meeting like you all that also give the hope. But I do think in some basic way, uh, terror and trauma being present from jump, but also the, the gift of life. And I, I almost didn't have a choice but to contend with this narrative that was put upon my existence. It's not about Pato as Pato. It's that I was a new life coming into a horrible situation mm -hmm. and in a place where people didn't have a lot of social connection because they were new to that small town. And so a lot gets put on that, you know, including the possibility of hope, you know, of new life. So that's one of the places it comes from. But in the organizing, I just meeting unbelievable people doing incredible things, you know. I give an example of my grandma and my parents in that story, but meeting people who, who are so inventive and so resilient and no bullshit, you know, they will just <laughs> let you know what's at stake and why these need to be the priorities and super creative and inventive and generous and compassionate and 
sharp and rigorous and each of those things like helps me aspire to stretch a little you know and to be in those kinds of processes with others whether it's you all right now or whoever's listening to this podcast at some moment in our future and my students and that's very nourishing and when it's too messy or too hard it's also depleting and then I have to rest a little you know <laughs> um, and then sometimes the replenishment is also about being with others and so the hope I don't think is is internal is what I'm saying and I don't think it's finite it's constantly in flux and can constantly be replenished and grown with others and it's not it's not counter to deep anxiety and sometimes even cynicism like they can exist simultaneously and so it's you know Jesse Jackson used to keep hope alive and I never understood it when I would hear that <laughs> as a young person like what it's kind of corny you know and I but I actually realized of course like especially the 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 kind of coalitions of people he was mobilizing and his his teams were mobilizing was how urgent it is to make sure that that hope is one of the things we're cultivating and not just cynicism or bitterness or isolation or alienation. What can we do to create a more just, equitable, and inclusive democracy? It's always about power and resources. And I think there are many ways we need to think about justice. One is to contend with our history itself. Um, there's an initiative that just I was reminded of, a couple of friends are working on in, in New York City with many, many others, landed in my inbox this morning. And it's engaging the 400, what they're calling 400 years of inequality. So thinking about Jamestown in 1619 and the arrival of what they call stolen hands and stolen lands. Mm -hmm. So it happens to be that my inbox connects a New York City initiative that's happening out of the New School with mm -hmm. Robert Sember and Michael Roberson and many, many, many people there, some of whom I haven't yet met, connecting a place like Jamestown, right? Yeah. And, you know, we like to think of this as the place of freedom and democracy. Um, enslavement and genocide and land theft and dispossession are foundational to the country. So we might have to rethink the terms of the nation itself. And, and if we could do that together and continue to work through that, it might help us rethink, well, what might the terms of a more just democracy be? And if we think about stolen bodies, tremendous violence of slavery, and the legacies that are all too real still, or we think about land displacement and genocide and what it means that if you asked, you know, the JMU community on whose ancestral lands do we stand and and who are the native people that are leading in your community could people answer those questions right yeah. and so in a very local and yet macro way that that might be a place to start right whether that's here in JMU or or in the density of an art school in in Manhattan where this initiative is happening so how are we thinking about the connections of place the connections of history and the inequalities that were here as foundational to the project as a way to imagine a different kind of project. And in that way, it circles back to some of the things we talked about at the start of the conversation about who is present, what priorities and terms are um, being given emphasis, um, who has the power and how is the power shared, what are the resources of need, you know, what are the resources of share, you know, and how are those determined and distributed and redistributed if we work through those together, we have a chance to, to make a very different way of being. 
which is super exciting and hard as hell. Um, but I think then we can get to questions of participation, representation, right, representational government, because we'd have to be attending to those questions of power. That once you get up to the scale of even city council, but certainly state legislature or national or an international body, right, like how do you think about delegations, elected officials, representatives, and, and the choices along those chains of power? But we're not yet in a place, we might get there someday, where it's really driven from the ground up. Mm. You know, it's still so concentrated and then maybe distributed or not. And so I think that's the the promise and the allure of something like democracy here, but it's also um, been our challenge for several hundred years now about how we enact it. I mean, some folks have barely had the right to vote even. Mm-hmm. And some folks still don't have it, right? That's right. So. How do you see art opening up the space for deliberation and dialogue across differences, especially when we talk about the political arena where people are so close to listening and, and working across differences in this moment? I think that this is not unique to art. I think it can happen with a stream. I think it can happen with a stranger at the bus stop. But I think that art has the possibility of a different kind of encounter. We can imagine, analyze, critique, feel, experience, move in different ways. And that opens up some other kind of possibility. And again, that can happen when you taste homemade food that you've never had before and it changes your life, right? Or you meet somebody who reinstills your sense of trust or you get exposed to a, a teacher or a student that, that changes everything, you know? like. I don't think it's at all unique to art, but because art is playing with the energy of creativity itself, it holds open that possibility that creativity can be a transformative force in our life. And again, that gets back to the idea of the door not just being the door, or an artwork not just being a static object, but something that's alive. It's an embodiment, it's an energy. And if we attend to all that that entails, from the structural to the conceptual to the spiritual to the emotional, we're so alive we're so, so alive. And I, I think that's the potential of art. Like the zine that we worked on at Palo Verde can include Emily's speech. Mm. It can include all the relationship building that that project's organizer, Marveya Muro, did to to set in motion a series of relationships and hold them in, in relationship when things got complicated or challenged. It was the printer who produced the zine, you know. Like each of those elements gives it the chance to have reach because it's not just a, a singular moment or a singular object. It's, it's connected to all these cross currents. And <laughs> so that's it. I think art gives us a, an opportunity to imagine new ways and to experience them in these beautifully rich, challenging, exciting embodiments. Thank you so very much for joining us Thank today. It has been pleasure. wonderful mm-hmm. to it's have this incredible. conversation with you. Pleasure, pleasure. Thank you. Thank we you look so forward much. to having you back. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the fabulous Leah Jackson, a rising senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. JMU senior political science major Julia Kravitz also helped us with research for this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University online 
at jmu.edu civic. Until next time.